This is Episode 6 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. How old are you today? 64. Um, How do you, different do you look at life at age 64 than you did at, say, 30? Oh, um, well, I'll tell you one. <laughs> Thank you for not asking the question. The stupidest single question that ever gets asked, and it gets asked over and over again, and usually to people older than me. But, you know, uh, it's, um, you know, what would you do? Would you do anything differently? Usually they talk to someone who's about as old as Methuselah and works every day of his 103 years, and, uh, and they want to know, you know, what's the secret of longevity, as if there is such a thing. And the second thing is, you know, implicit in that is, would you do anything differently? And there, bizarrely enough, there are people out there who think you're supposed to say no, that it's somehow a demonstration of confidence or strength. And you something, what, the, what, that, what that says, it says in 103 years, in my case, 64 years, You've never misjudged someone. You've never said something you wish you could take back. I mean, it's just so monumentally unlearned. I mean, if if anything, we we all are because we're human are going to make mistakes, and the only justification is that you learn from them, so you hopefully don't repeat them. But if you you know at the end of your life you're self-satisfied enough. It's one thing to say, I can't change the past. None of us can change the past. And it's quite different from saying, I wouldn't change the past if I could. Um, I think, hopefully, the, the, the most important thing you learn is humility. Um, you, you... Why? You're caught up particularly when you're young, the very passion that drives you to write a book or run a museum or, I mean, you can think of a dozen other fields, that, that quality narrows, in some ways, your perception. You don't realize that there are other people with equal passion who might do the same job differently, who might reach different conclusions. Um, you worry, certainly as a writer, you worry entirely too much about what reviewers say. Um, I mean, there are just so many reasons. I mean, everything it seems to be about life uh, should be point in the direction of, of learning, to some degree, your limitations. Um, the fact that other people may be right and you may be wrong. Um, and, and, and a generalized humility. I mean, for example, I mean, I can tell you, I used to tell myself, well, you know, um, it's important to live through an institution. You put everything you have in an institution. And that's fine. I mean, that's a good way of, except if you make the mistake of equating, if you make the mistake of equating yourself with the institution, then you are you are bound for disappointment because I can tell you more than one of the museums on which I lavished time and, and attention uh, have, for example, been completely redone and arguably improved, you know, since my version of the history. So, you know, it's, it's, 
It's an obvious lesson. It's a lesson that some people never learn. When, was, when did you receive your biggest lesson in humility? Or when, did, when were you humbled by something? Or when did you say to yourself, I need to be more humble? I actually, you know, I, I don't think, and it sounds like vanity to say it, I don't think I was ever self-satisfied and I was certainly never, in that sense, condescending. I mean, I was aware very early that those were those were traits that you really, you know, actively wanted to to avoid. Um, people who thought they were better than other people. I mean, those are villains. <laughs> and uh, you give me, also, I, I well, for example, with age, I realized where my politics come from. I mean, I was nine years old, sitting in front of the TV, watching the March on Washington. And I remember how profoundly it affected me. And I don't mean to pretend that I had any great grasp of the larger issues, but talk about good guys and bad guys. Um, that was the year, of course, of Birmingham. And then in 64, um, you know, you had the, the three civil rights workers in, in Mississippi and um, Viola Uzzo. I mean, names that are largely forgotten today, but which were very, very vivid. Um, and I remember, and, and, and politically, it played itself out in the Rockefeller Goldwater contest in 1964. Um, Rockefeller, from a family and political tradition, of being very strongly pro-civil rights. Goldwater, for principled reasons, certainly having nothing to do with racism, but uh, who, who called into question parts of the, of the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. Um, clearly, uh, the Goldwater view prevailed. Uh, the Republican Party became increasingly Southern. Um, the Southern strategy um, came into play, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, something that LBJ and, of all people, predicted at the time he signed the, the bill. So, I mean, that, it's funny. I don't know when people form their political views. I think lots of people, at least initially, inherit them from their parents um, in much the same way that I think lots of people inherit their religious affiliations. And it's the business of living to determine whether, in fact, uh, you know, after much experience and reflection, those are the values that you want to espouse, or that is the, the creed that you, you want to pray to. So in this November 2017, where do you live? I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And what are you doing? In the... Uh, Tallest building in town, the tallest building between Chicago and Detroit, um, a, uh, a building overlooking the gravesite of Gerald and Betty Ford, and from which I see their gravesite as I sit at my desk writing a biography of President Ford, which, by the nature of things, is also uh, Mrs. Ford's story, um, a, a book I've been working on for in earnest now for 
three years, although before that, actually, it took about two years to interview about 160 uh, Ford associates. So um, one reason why the book will take less time than the Rockefeller is that that oral history portion, for the most part, had, had already been completed uh, before I knew I was going to write the biography. I remember the day of the funeral in January 2007, and the president asked me to deliver the, the final eulogy after Jimmy Carter and Donald Rumsfeld in the church in Grand Rapids. And we were riding back from the church to the interment on the grounds of the museum. Huge crowds. And this building was under construction at the time. And there was, every floor, there were construction workers who had removed their helmets. I mean, it was very moving. And I remember literally standing at the gravesite, looking over my shoulder and saying, someday I'm going to live in that building. And as fate would have it, it I'm living in the building and completing the biography. So it was kind of a, you know, coming full circle. The biography of Gerald R. Ford will be completed and available when? Um, the hope is, and it's, and I'm, I'm, I'm on target, will be uh, completed in time for publication uh, just before the 2020 presidential election. Why then? Well, I think uh, attention will be riveted on the office, and I think the contrast between Ford, Ford the president, Ford the man, for the Republican, um, and uh, shall we say, um, current occupants of the White House will be noticeable. Personal questions. Um, have you ever driven? Never. That's a good question. And I never, and I never, that's something I, I still, I never fail to be amazed that people are amazed that I've never driven. It's as if you think everyone drives. And I, I, Yes, I understand that. Turns out, somewhere I saw, God knows where the number comes from, something like 25 million Americans who are autophobic, who literally would not get behind the wheel of a car. And, you know, it's very important in life to know your limitations. We were talking earlier about humility. I knew very early that I should not be driving a car. Even if I could drive a car, the way my mind works... I suspect I would probably um, take some innocent bystanders just because I wasn't paying any attention uh, to, to the road. When did you use a computer for the first time? <laughs> uh, I can date that, too. Um, 2001. When do you use it to write with your, your books with? Oh, I don't. I don't. I write by I write longhand. Um, I, I use a computer. I, I I was always resistant, and something in me is still old-fashioned enough, troglodytic enough to um, to question the legitimacy of research done on the internet. But I've obviously discovered it is uh, a, a, an inexhaustible source of original primary source material. What what used to be exclusively found in a in a Hollinger box. In a, in a library. So I understand that, and I'm utilizing that. But um, I write in longhand. Um, and the curious way, uh, the, the reason I started is, you know, I was a speechwriter for a number of years. And that's a different kind of writing. 
Who'd you write for? Oh, gosh, I wrote, well, I started by writing for Ed Brooke, my senator from Massachusetts, uh, and then Bob Dole for many years, and Elizabeth Dole, and Pete Wilson. And then later on, I had the opportunity to write for former presidents, Reagan and Ford. I also wrote my token Democrat, and the man who taught me more about government than anyone else, Kevin White, the mayor of Boston, who deserves a biography. The, the very colorful, complicated, fascinating man, personification, you know, those Lindsay era, sort of street corner, liberal mayors who over time became somewhat disillusioned. And in the mayor's case, his great tragedy was for about three hours, one day during the 1972 Democratic Convention, he thought he was going to be George McGovern's running mate. And um, he had been offered the job. And then members of the Massachusetts delegation, including, so we're told, um, Kennedy's and, and, and John Kenneth Galbraith, um, um, put the kibosh on Mayor White. And thereafter, he lived with the sense of what if. Um, he was interested running for president in 1976. I remember him telling me, Jimmy Carter came to town and all these other people, and he said, God, I'm better than them. I mean, he, he, and his great tragedy was he had a talent that was too large and a vision for the, for the stage that he was afforded. And then, of course, the busing crisis erupted, and it destroyed any national chances he had. And I think he, I don't say he became bitter. Um, he, I think he probably succumbed to the natural political inclination, which is to stay too long at the fair. In the last term, he probably shouldn't have run. But I was there through it all, and it was, it was fascinating. One day, there had been a tax revolt in Massachusetts, something called Proposition Two and a Half, which put a straitjacket on municipalities' tax rates. And of course, people in the state suffer inordinately from high property taxes. Um, anyway, it, Boston was hit hard. And I will never forget, he, he spent most of his time not at City Hall. Francis Parkman, the great historian, his house was owned by the city. The Parkman house became the mayor's home away from home. And that's where we retreated to Francis Parkman's study Every year on New Year's weekend, we write the State of the City Address uh, in Parkman's study. And it was, anyway, learning process. One Friday afternoon, it had gotten so bad that the, 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 the police and firemen were blocking the summer tunnel. Remember the tunnels that go over to East Boston and Logan Airport? Um, and this had really reached, obviously, a crisis point. The phone rings. The mayor, as close to me as you are, is on the phone to his chief of police. And he says, here's what we're going to do. You know, we're going to take people from desk jobs and we're going to put them out on the street. And he's going down this list. No notes. Just, you know, this is he's obviously thought about this. And we're going to do this and this and this. We're going to sign these people. And this is what he but I tell you one thing, he said, I tell you one group we're not going to get rid of said, we're not getting rid of any Kevin White people. <laughs> well, 
By that time, the mayor had a machine, allegedly about 5,000 city workers. They were Kevin White people. And it was fascinating to, in retrospect, he had started out. He was the woman who beat Louise A. Hicks, you know, the, the, the personification of racism in the North. And, and he was, no pun intended, the great white hope uh, of urban liberals. And over 16 years, he morphed. Um, I mean, he said he'd never changed, but the experience of governing Boston changed him to the point where he was Mayor Daley, you know, at, at the end. And I had a front row seat. I was in Washington. I did all this work over the telephone. And one day, the Boston Globe, they had something called the Waste Watch. <laughs> the Spotlight team ran a front page expose of the out of town, no, no bid contract speechwriter. And this is, you know, supposed to be a scandal. Well, $10,000 a year had been earmarked for me. And the fact of the matter is, a speechwriter would cost 30 or 35. And he was getting better work. Anyway, and, and again, the lesson of the mayor. I saw him a few days later. I was in Boston. And he was, he was beaming. He said, well, did you see the article in the Globe? I said, well. He said, tell you, we don't throw wolves. <laughs> we don't throw anyone to the wolves <laughs> around here. And it became a badge of honor. It bonded us, you know, because he obviously looked about the Globe was out to get him. And, um, you know, I suppose. Anyway, but he was um, the, the most, actually, the most interesting person, the most complex person I've ever worked with. And I, at least by that time, I was old enough and, and I think hopefully intelligent enough to know, watch this guy. You're going you're gonna to learn something from him. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.